Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. First of all, thanks for all the lovely feedback about the episode around alcohol and pregnancy. I'm really glad to hear it resonated with so many of you. Now on to this episode. And in this one, I spoke to James Nichols, who's CEO of an organisation called Transform. Now, you may have seen media reports in the last couple of weeks about a publication suggesting that stimulants should be regulated and legalised. This publication comes from Transform. It's exploring what evidence-based regulation of stimulants might look like. The organisation have also published a similar document looking at cannabis regulation a few years ago. I spoke to James about both of these documents. What are some of the issues that regulating currently illicit drugs need to consider? And what happens when some or what happened when some places did start to regulate cannabis? It's quite a different conversation to ones I've previously had on Say White Drugs, where the topic of regulation is something, to be honest, I've slightly steered clear of. So I'm really keen to know what you make of it. Once you've listened, do let me know on Instagram, Twitter or anywhere really. But for now, please enjoy, as James Nichols and I say why, to regulation of drugs. Great. So I guess, first of all, can I get you to introduce yourself? Yeah. So I'm uh, James Nichols. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Transform Drug Policy Foundation. And can you tell us a little bit about what Transform is? Yeah. So Transform is a charity which is uh, based in, in Bristol mainly, but also in London. Uh, it's been around for about 20 years and it advocates for drug policy reform our goal is to promote drug policy that supports human rights, social justice and public health. Uh, for many years, Transform has been one of the leading organisations that has set out alternatives to drug prohibition. So one of the things that Transform does particularly is try to develop practical models uh, for alternatives to prohibition. So setting out ways in which we can effectively regulate legally currently illegal drugs. I'd also say that Transform also has a a campaign called Anyone's Child, which works with families of, uh, of people or families themselves who've been directly affected by drug policy or drug harms who are campaigning for changes to drug drug law as well. So we've got a uh, an aspect of our work which is about research and evidence and think tank element. Uh, we've got a campaigning 
aspects and as I say we work with people working in policy people working in treatment and and people directly affected. Now I feel like I should probably address um, the fact that in my podcast in Say Why to Drugs to date I've kind of steered clear of talking about things like policy and legality um, other than sort of talking about the facts of sort of what we know about like what the law says at the moment kind of thing. But it's something that comes up all the time when I do public events. People are really interested in this issue and interested in particular in sort of, well, what's the evidence around it? Like, does how we treat drugs at the moment work in terms of protecting people, protecting lives, protecting health, protecting the economy, protecting the prison system? You know, there's all these different aspects of life that are affected by drugs and by drug laws. And as the conversations around drugs have been changing in the past few years, at least, with criminalisation, legalisation, regulation changing across the world in different places, particularly around cannabis, and maybe that's a good place to start this conversation. It's something that's very much in and around the sort of the media and public consciousness so it feels like a good time to actually talk about it on the podcast. So maybe we can start with, there's all these different words around the ways that we can treat drugs in terms of the law. Things like decriminalisation, legalisation and regulation. But they they don't mean the same thing, do they? No, they don't. And uh, it's it's a confusion that is very widespread and understandably so. Uh, given that I think people's you know general experience of, dr- of drug policy is that drugs are illegal and so alternatives to that are much the same thing but as you say they are different so in the case of decriminalization what what we're talking about there is um, the removal of uh, criminal penalties primarily for possession of drugs uh, and that can take different forms from programs which divert people who are would otherwise be arrested and put into the criminal justice system for possession of drugs through to a principle whereby you know you, you uh, simply uh, remove all criminal penalties uh, at all for for possession. So there's variations, and there are many many countries that have forms of decriminalisation across the world, and they take many different. There are many different versions of that. Uh, the difference between that and, and an illegal regulation model is that is that legal regulation would involve the formal uh, moving of drug supply itself into a regulated system, which would then be much more like the systems we have for, say, tobacco or alcohol or pharmaceuticals. So the, I said, I guess the kind of simple distinction between decriminalisation and legal regulation is is that one tackles removal of criminal penalties for possession, and the other takes the market as a whole and seeks to establish a regulated system of, of, of licensing uh, for supply uh, as well. So in the, in the former case, the supply generally still remains illegal and, and subject to criminal sanctions. In, this, in the latter, um, there's an attempt to create a, a, a kind of holistic market um, system for the regulated supply of drugs, which are currently illegal. Now, Transform have just written a document about what regulation of stimulants could look like. And we'll come on to talk about that in a bit, but I think it might be better to start with cannabis since this is something where there are different different countries around the world have started down this road towards either decriminalisation or regulation of cannabis. And there's lots and lots of different ways that you can do that. So Transform wrote a document, a 
few years ago now about cannabis. What was the purpose of that document? So, yeah, I mean, as I say, I think one of the things that Transform has always sought to do is to say, well, okay, if people feel that the war on drugs or however you want to describe it has been a failure, then there's a there's a responsibility then to go, well, okay, what would the alternatives look like and how can we how can we lay them out in some detail? So, I mean, back in 2009, in fact, Transform published a book called After the War on Drugs Blueprint for uh, regulation, which tried to which sketched out a general model for the regulation of currently illegal drugs, um, and then some years later we published a book called How to Regulate Cannabis: A Practical Guide, which was uh, specifically geared towards laying out a regulatory model for cannabis, um, which implemented or applied public health principles to that to that market. So our goal in in writing that book was to try and, and, and lay out in detail how you uh, would establish a system which provided for the legal supply of cannabis, but did so in such a way that you could promote public health and, well, social justice as far as is possible. Now, that book's being revised at the moment because actually, as you say, since that book came out, we've seen transformations in the cannabis market globally, particularly Canada and a number of US states, also Uruguay, Jamaica, other countries as well. Um, and what that has shown us, and it's, it shouldn't be a surprise, is A, that there are many different ways of establishing legal markets and that often small differences between those markets can have significant impacts in terms of outcomes but also that there are things that maybe were not sufficiently planned for or predicted when this was still hypothetical Uh, and one of those is the extent to which ensuring social justice in a legalized market is is actually very difficult and needs to be really carefully thought about and secondarily just how difficult it can be uh, and how important it is to establish systems which ensure that you don't simply end up with the emergence of powerful multinational uh, corporate interests in the cannabis space who in some ways mirror the kind of interest that you have in the alcohol and tobacco space because if you're approaching this from a public health perspective that's not what you want you want to have a system which promotes public health which doesn't um, simply promote a profit-driven commercialization um, can we just clarify what what do we mean by social justice in this context? One of the kind of primary arguments for reforming drug policy is that the prohibition of drugs in its history was always linked to race politics. So in the UK, for example, the ban on opium in the early 20th century was was connected to politics around Chinese immigration in London. And the same is true in the West Coast of, of, of America as well. Clearly, later in the 20th century, the uh, extent to which both creation of laws against cannabis and cocaine use, the implementation of those laws and the way in which those laws were were talked about and discussed in the public was absolutely uh, related to uh, to race politics. And we have seen uh, the extent to which the uh, implementation of drug laws have led to the mass incarceration of black people, particularly uh, in North America, but also the disproportionate use of police forces across the world and in the UK. So there's an absolute relationship between black communities in particular, but also people of colour across society who have been disproportionately impacted by drug policy. And so one of the 
one of the kind of major arguments for reform has been, well, we've, we've had a, effectively a system which has been racist in its design and its implementation to a large degree. The goal of reforming that is to address those racial inequalities, to address that legacy and that history of racism. But the difficulty is, is how do you actually achieve that? Because if you're not careful, uh, what you can do is you can take uh, something like the, the cannabis market and the communities who have been hit hardest by the prohibition of that market being black communities primarily. And again, in the United States, this is a particular issue. If then in creating a legal market, you don't proactively put in place systems whereby the records of convictions, for example, for um, possession or, or, or supply are addressed, or if you don't put in proactively systems whereby people from communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs are not empowered to and supported to become part of the new market, what you may end up with, and, and, and has been the case to some degree, is you have a replacement of uh, the existing market with a market that is dominated by large multinational, largely white-led organisations, which then just step in and mop up all the profits of the legal trade whilst you continue to criminalise and marginalise people of colour who have been criminalised and marginalised by the prohibition system which preceded it. Ensuring social justice in that context is about saying what are the specific aspects of the, the legislation that we need to put in place to ensure that on the one hand the legacy of criminalisation which goes back generations, is addressed. So things like expunging prior convictions for drug-related offences so that people don't have that on their record any longer. And secondarily, how do you establish licensing regimes, for example, or training systems whereby you proactively support people from communities that have been disproportionately affected into the new markets so that they have a stake in those markets going forward? So when you're trying to kind of design or advise on what the best kind, for want of a better word, of regulation would look like, how do you go about weighing up the evidence? Because there's obviously lots of different aspects to this question and what might be the best market in terms of public health would be different in terms of social justice would be different in terms of the criminal or processing cannabis or you know there's all these different there's all these different factors that you need to weigh up so how how do you go about doing that or how did you go about doing that when writing the report yeah i mean it's it's in some respects a difficult thing to do because if you're trying to model policy on the basis of a, an existing system where if you have an existing system prohibition you're trying to model uh, a, a system of legal regulation. You don't have prior markets on which to base the evidence for the for those proposals. So you have to kind of do it by proxy to an extent. So, you know, you have to look at, well, what, what are the lessons you can learn, say, from the history of alcohol regulation, which is something that, you know, prior to joining Transform, I was very involved in. And we have in the case of alcohol, and we have it to a degree in the case of tobacco as well, a very long and rich history that we can learn from around uh, licensing and how licensing can best promote public health outcomes around different models for supply, around the risks of corporate capture and uh, commercialization promoting harm. I think one of the points you, you're kind of you touch on there, which I think is interesting, is that in some respects, 
trying to think through how you can establish markets that address issues of criminalization, marginalization and market access and how you design systems that promote public health by addressing issues around price availability and marketing, which we know in the case of alcohol and tobacco are drivers of public health harms, is complicated because in some respects you need to be looking at ways in which you... But also actually the third issue that you need to be doing is how do you penetrate illegal markets in such a way that people actually shift to the legal regime? And that is complicated and and we don't have precedent to work from directly. So we have to take uh, what we know about, for example, the relationship between, I don't know, outlet density, uh, consumption and harm in the case of alcohol. But we also need to think about, well, how do we ensure that we don't reduce availability to an extent whereby the, the current uh, illegal market just doesn't really get touched by it, which is something that uh, in Canada people are having to think about now because one of the questions that, that's been looked at in Canada is, has the market in some respects been too restricted so that it's it's left a residual illegal market fairly much in place? Those are very complicated questions. And we have evidence, as I say, from legal drug markets, tobacco uh, and alcohol in particular. But quite a, you know, a lot of what we need to be doing here is, is saying, well, let's collectively think through what the options are for the future. And as regulatory models are implemented ensure as far as is possible that proper evaluation is put in place so that we can assess the impacts of those newly regulated markets and uh, adapt those markets as they go along so again as i say in the case of canada fortunately they, you know they've got a fairly good evaluation process going on and we're able to start looking at looking at that and, and reflect on that and people are able to think about how uh, those systems might be amended or tweaked or done differently um, to address either unintended consequences or unpredicted consequences or to maximise things that are working. Because one of the things that's being talked about quite a lot in the sort of academic research literature about cannabis at the moment is potency. And obviously that's something where there has to be a kind of trade-off in terms of thinking about regulation between potentially high THC cannabis being particularly risky in terms of public health or and individual health compared to if you make a if you allow the only legal product to be so low potency but people won't actually make the switch from the illicit market to the legal market. Yeah, I mean, that is something where I think we can look at alcohol, actually. And over time in alcohol markets, both reasons of health, but also for reasons of just simplifying the taxation systems. We have a fairly kind of elaborate kind of regulatory structure in terms of taxation around relating potency to uh, tax levels, certainly in the UK at least, and certainly for beer in the UK, less so for some of the other forms of alcohol. But also, I think we have a a relatively um, sophisticated understanding of the relationship between the strength of products and the effects they have. I think the problem with the cannabis market is is that we're actually not very literate, less so, I think, amongst kind of people who who are regularly uh, using cannabis who have a better kind of idea of, of strength. But I think generally within society, we're not very literate around that relationship between strength, harm, and how we can use things like the tax system Uh, things like the licensing system to address that. I think you're right that to a degree, and this has been something that I think Canada has found, is that if the product available on the legal market doesn't meet the demand that is being met by the illegal market, the illegal market will simply continue to provide that 
product. However, I don't think that the alternative to that is simply to say, well, the legal market is just going to have to provide the most powerful concentrates, the most powerful uh, edibles, and just allow them to, to become part of the of the legal market. I think that there are all sorts of nudges and tweaks that can be put in place whereby you say, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll scale up the legal market so that it, it meets that demand, but we will ensure that in doing that, we use particularly, I think, taxation effectively so that there's a relationship between the kind of cost of products, both for producers and for consumers, and the strength of those products, as is the case to a degree for uh, beer, for example, in the UK, where where taxation goes up by strength, but also things like minimum unit pricing in the UK, of course, where you can try and nudge the market by having better systems for linking uh, price uh, to strength. In places where cannabis regulation has begun, how have the way that these states or countries introduced it compared to what you recommended in your document? Like, and how well do you think different places are doing in terms of regulation of cannabis? It's a very good question. And, and what's, what's happening is we're seeing a, a series of natural experiments going on, particularly in the United States, because individual states are doing it differently. To some degree, you know, we, were, we were pleased to see that the Canadian government in particular incorporated quite a lot of the ideas that were there in in our book you know around plain packaging around limitations to marketing around trying to ensure that availability and outlet density was thought about in such a way that you could you know avoid the worst forms of, of a kind of unregulated commercial market having said which i think that uh, the one of the big flaws with the canadian model and and possibly something that in our previous editions of the book which is actually being addressed in the new edition is is that understanding the extent to which the social justice part of the jigsaw really really needs to be thought through practically uh, is something that, that just wasn't really there in, in Canada. Canada was focusing on public health and protection of young people which are important things and reducing the size of the illegal market but it wasn't focused enough on social justice if you compare that to, to some of the states in north america in, uh, in the united states sorry you you see that some states massachusetts for example has been much more proactive in trying to address the social justice aspect so it has instituted licensing systems where the cost thresholds are low enough that people from uh, poorer communities can get involved in the market where limitations on the number of uh, outlets that any individual uh, company can hold are designed to a degree to try and ensure that you don't get um, monopolization of markets by big corporates um, where training systems are put in place to bring people into the market on the other hand if you look at places like california where they've been more proactive in terms of expunging prior convictions for uh, drug-related offences and have have tried quite hard to address that part of the jigsaw. What we're seeing, I think, from Transform's perspective is, in some respects, in places like Canada and Uruguay in particular, really um, positive outcomes in terms of uh, trying to focus on public health, much more varied in the United States where, you know, you get some uh, states such as Colorado where the, where the, the design is much more of a commercial market. But also that we're learning... Uh, and I think everyone is learning at the same time that, that particularly around the social justice piece, that um, there are many different ways of, of approaching that and none are perfect. And that we all need to be, uh, all of us who are involved in 
trying to think around regulation need to really do some hard thinking about how do you practically learn from what's going on and develop strong recommendations that are applicable in different jurisdictions around social justice and also around dealing with that tension between public health promotion and providing enough availability that the legal market provides a a reasonably attractive uh, alternative uh, for consumers. One of the things I think that people worry about in terms of legalisation of drugs is drugs are illegal because they're harmful, right? And so if we legalise drugs, are we not just saying that we're encouraging people to use them or that lots more people who wouldn't have used them under an illegal system would now think, oh, well, they're legal now, so I should go and try them and and potentially put themselves at risk. Yeah, I mean, our view on that is that we need to regulate drugs because they're potentially harmful, because what you have otherwise is a market which is entirely unregulated and which doesn't appear to shrink despite decades of prohibition. You have markets that are just expanding and that have associated harms which arise entirely from the illegality of those markets. So, for example, I was, there's, a, there's a paper that's just come out in Addiction Journal by uh, Claire Wilkinson and Alison Ritter, which is looking at costs to others studies in alcohol um, uh, and asking whether they could also be applied to currently illegal drugs. And one of the interesting points that that article raises is it's, when you look at the harm to others caused by alcohol, they are, are generally on the consumption side so people getting involved in violence or becoming ill themselves or whatever else it may be or costs to the health service around consumption but if you look at the currently illegal drug market huge amounts of the what you would class as harms to others come from the fact that the supply is illegal so whether that's the exploitation of producers the incalculable levels of corruption and violence that are experienced by transit countries such as mexico the violence and exploitation of supply whether that be county lines networks whether that be the kind of extent to which um, the markets are characterized by um, opposing suppliers fighting it out for market territory all of those additional harms are directly uh, linked to the illegality of the market now i take your point that that you could say well there's a kind of signaling that comes from having certain drugs remain illegal which is to say that as a society by proxy through our regulatory position we are saying that these drugs are dangerous but we know or certainly the kind of comparative studies that have that have been done by David Nutt and others if you look kind of objectively at at the harms associated with different drugs alcohol alcohol is right there at the very at the very top as you well know from those those studies and that's not to say that we have a perfect market for alcohol, it's very bag- badly regulated at the moment, or in some respects, it's very badly regulated. But to say that um, for all the all of the substances were which were lumped together in the United Na- uh, Nations conventions of 1961 and 1971, that that, that we have this one size fits all approach to those substances, which is you simply make the market illegal and you criminalise supply and you criminalise use, that that will send this signal and that the associated costs in terms of health harms, violence, exploitation, lack of access to support and treatment, are a price is worth paying to send that signal. 
it's something that I mean the transform we don't accept and, and our argument is is that it's because of the risks associated with drugs it's because you need to have systems in place whereby you can take as much as is possible the market out of the kind of hands of essentially transnational organized crime which is operating completely parallel to uh, formerly regulated markets that that is the approach that you need to take or at least you know seriously consider that as the alternative way of doing things because there is precious little evidence that the way things are being done at the moment is achieving anything like the outcomes which it's supposed to achieve you know i mean just to kind of like think about the the way that the united nations itself talks about this Every few years, I mean, in 2009, for example, you know, the the United Nations put out its 10-year drug policy and with the goal of achieving a drug-free world within 10 years. That was the goal, was was to achieve a a drug-free world. It's kind of reasonable to ask yourself, how have we got ourselves into a situation where the United Nations, um, collectively and collaboratively, in all seriousness presents as its policy goal a drug-free world. I mean, that's objectively irrational. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And if that's your goal, if your goal is something that is utopian and unachievable in that respect, as we know, when you have kind of utopian goals, the means become skewed and you end up uh, engaging in all sorts of activities and all sorts of behaviours which are, are damaging in themselves because you're pursuing an impossible outcome. And I don't think that's easily discounted. I don't think we should simply say, "Oh well," but 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 it's a good it's a good idea to try and have a drug free world, isn't it? Because I think when you, when you do that, then you end up pursuing uh, pursuing policies and actually legitimising things like the war on drugs in the Philippines, which has cost tens and tens of thousands of lives and countless extrajudicial killings and a complete you know um, perversion of the rule of law. And you look at the violence in places like Mexico. I don't think it's good enough for us to just go, well, you know, drug-free world's a good idea, though, isn't it? It's neither achievable, nor does it lead to activities which are just, which promote human rights or which promote public health. Well, and it's it's just really hypocritical as well, because a drug-free world would mean an alcohol-free world, and no one's suggesting that. Exactly. And this is the other problem with the system that we have in place at the moment. One of the big problems with it is it creates this cognitive illusion which says... On the one hand, you have alcohol, and on the other hand, you have drugs, as if currently illegal drugs are in any way similar to each other in any other respect than the fact that they are psychoactive and illegal. And and also that alcohol somehow has this free pass, despite the fact that it's a powerfully psychoactive substance. It's, you know, it's powerfully, as anyone who's ever been really drunk knows perfectly well, it's powerfully psychoactive. It is... You know, there are there's a significant proportion of consumers who either become problematic, who have problem, problematic uh, use or dependency. It's associated with all sorts of negative externalities in terms of uh, behavior and, and harm and yet gets a free pass. Whereas all other drugs, whether it be heroin, LSD, ketamine, cocaine, MDMA, are all put in a basket marked illegal drugs we need to eradicate them from 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 the world it's that lack of nuance it's that kind of binary clunky sledgehammer to crack a nut approach which emerges out of our current 
system, which has all these terrible consequences in terms of policy. As, you know, and it's not just a principle that we need to be no, more nuanced. It's the practical reality of the fact that it leads to absurdities like people being having their lives hugely impacted by, say, you know, a, a conviction for possession of MDMA, let's say. In what respect is that a positive outcome for that individual or for society? And if we do think that's the case, if we, and if we can see the hypocrisy in that and we can see the damage that that does, then we have to, Transform's view is, and my view is, that we have to say, okay, well, if that's not working or if that's creating these catastrophic uh, social, political consequences, we have to consider what the alternatives are and we have to work through them. We have to lay them out and we have to compare them and say, well, do we think that'll work? Does that work? Should we try that? How can we assess and evaluate the impact of these alternatives? And I think as is often the case for many people to kind of go, oh, well, it's just, it's it's the status quo. It's just, I can't think of, you know, it's too complicated or it's bad, but what can you do? You know, it just doesn't really, doesn't really work. I think everyone needs to at least consider what the alternatives might be. Now, we've talked about cannabis legalisation and regulation, and in a way, that's a good starting point because more people have tried cannabis than other currently illicit drugs, uh, certainly in the UK and in lots of other places. It's seen as, rel- I mean, obviously, there are health risks from using cannabis, but it's seen as relatively benign, certainly by a lot of people, or potentially beneficial by a lot of other people as well. But you've just written a report about stimulants and that is quite a bit more of a controversial issue to some people. The thought of legalising something like cocaine or methamphetamine or even MDMA. So what were the different kind of issues you had to think about when thinking about a regulated market for stimulants compared to cannabis? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it is a much more difficult issue um, and much more difficult area. And, and just to say, you know, I, I think one of the great things about transform has always been that it's been prepared to go there and say look here's the territory you may feel uncomfortable with we will explore that territory and attempt to lay out what that territory looks like in terms of a regulated system it's absolutely the case that for stimulants the questions are different and they're much more harder to 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 adjust and it doesn't really have that kind of cover of medicinal use that you have for cannabis and to a degree for uh, psychedelics as well, because as you'll know, the debate around psychedelics right now is very much driven around medical use. That's not the case. So what we were, you know, what we've had to to do in terms of thinking about stimulants, and and again, to go back to my previous point, there's a kind of a clunkiness even in that, in that we're, we're looking at cocaine, amphetamines, and MDMA, which in their own ways are very different. Uh, have different use and risk profiles. I think what it forces the issue of is that once you remove the cover, as as it were, of medicinal use, you're forced to confront what is that fundamental question about, okay, if you have substances out there that people wish to use for essentially either recreational or to some degree functional in the case of of amphetamines in particular you know there are many 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 a large proportion of amphetamines that are used globally are used simply to keep people awake when they're working long hours Um, so there's a functional use but there's you know 
when you're thinking about uh, substances that are used primarily for uh, recreational purposes, that raises all sorts of further questions then about, and again, it goes back to alcohol. On what basis do we determine which forms of recreation are acceptable? On what basis do we balance the risks of use to the user and the externality, the external harms to other people of a substance against the rights of individuals to use substances recreationally? Um, and how do we do that in a way that promotes public health? So, so it, it kind of forces a discussion whereby we don't kind of get, it's not so much sidetracked down the issue of, of, of medicinal use, but that's just not part of the uh, part of the equation. So if essentially what we were having to do was go, well, okay, how would you create a, a, a market in which these uh, uh, substances were made available in different ways depending on their risk profiles, but also in ways that does not allow for a kind of marketization whereby, as is the case with alcohol, the recreational uh, or pleasurable aspects of that drug become the driver for a, a marketized system which seeks primarily to to increase consumption and particularly to do so amongst that smaller proportion of the consuming population who consume most of the substance because as we know that kind of Pareto distribution works across most substances if not all and transform because it comes at it from a harm reduction and public health perspective what we have attempted to lay out is realistically speaking what how would you how just how would you how would you create that how would you allow for the decriminalization of possession and the legal regulation of supply in a way that does not at the same time allow for the fact that 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 these drugs can be fun for people um to become the engine of a marketing a marketized system which seeks to increase consumption in the way that we've seen with alcohol. So that was our, those are the questions we had to address and we had to wrestle with them. They're very, very difficult questions. But that's, yeah, that's what we were having to think about in, in putting the book together. And so what are some of the conclusions that you came to after sort of weighing up the evidence and looking at different potential options? We had to think about things like, I mean, marketing is one of the more easy ones. So you have to think about things like, okay, uh, what, do you do around, what do you do around marketing? Do you go down a kind of the, the route of, of alcohol where marketing is regulated but it's by and large self-regulated by by the industry in other respects is there to both promote individual brands but also to promote the product uh, itself it was that was there was not a, a particularly difficult one for us in, in our view was the, the marketing for um, allowing marketing in any kind of conventional way for uh, the substances we're talking about would 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 not be acceptable. I mean, that was a kind of a almost a, a, a kind of um, one of the simpler issues we had to address. I think more complicated was things like if you take how you license the supply of a drug. If you take the case of alcohol in the UK, for example, where you have local licensing authorities uh, that are tasked with controlling the availability both in terms of numbers of outlets and the hours of which they operate uh, in their local area in theory that should allow for a fairly kind of tight control of those things but in practice they don't because local authorities are simply not powerful enough to stand up against the collective might and wealth of 
the alcohol industry. And so what you see is that local licensing regimes actually very rarely reject licenses and very rarely turn down applications for extensions of hours. Given the prospect of a similar system for stimulants, we recognise that that would probably not work. And so um, we are proposing a a model which is much more uh, based around pharmacy-style outlets where we have uh, trained suppliers where the um, whole supply chain is is a, a effectively a state monopoly, as is the case for off-sales of alcohol, say, in a number of provinces in Canada and in large parts of Scandinavia. These are not ideas which are out of the blue. They are still based on, on existing models. Uh, so that's where we came down, which was a, a state monopoly of supply, so that the profit, the private profit motive is removed as much as possible retail through specialist pharmacies so we're not saying you can just stick stimulants on the shelves in corner shops or supermarkets or even sell in clubs and pubs because there are all sorts of issues there around as we know with the sale of alcohol around regulating the amount that people are able to purchase and the way in which it's consumed um, so it's a very restrictive model that, that we're putting forward actually it's a very tightly controlled model but that comes out of the fact that the thing that we are most concerned or one of the things we're most concerned to avoid is the kind of mistakes that have been made where you have lightly or poorly regulated alcohol markets and previously very poorly regulated tobacco markets because we know that given given the opportunity and commerce being commerce it will seek to uh, find gaps in the regulation so from our perspective the the way in which you can do this most effectively is by modeling on the kind of state monopolies for alcohol that you have in in Scandinavia and parts of the rest of the world, and which and which were much more common uh, earlier in the twentieth century as well. Your report also takes the sort of the risk from the substance itself into account as well, doesn't it? So, this, there wouldn't necessarily be the same regulation for buying a tablet of MDMA compared to sort of injectable crystal meth, for for example. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this 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 again goes back to that point that. It's not a matter of saying keep all drugs illegal or make all drugs legal as if it's a binary. What it's a matter of saying is we need to create regulatory systems that properly reflect the risks associated with drugs and that the, the availability of those, of those substances is based on those on those risks. So, for example, yes, injectable stimulants, crack cocaine also are proposal is for those to be available but available through a uh, a prescription supply similar to the kind of thing we have around heroin assisted uh, heroin prescribing where you're you're talking then about a much more medicalized um, context for supply which again in, i mean it's interesting in the case of heroin in the uk you know it is legal to to prescribe heroin it, it used to be much more commonplace it, it's not you know the evidence for heroin prescribed heroin globally is very strong in terms of in terms of the outcomes it can achieve in that respect in terms of stimulants for the for uh, injectable stimulants and for, and for crack cocaine that's the kind of model that we're looking at is saying well can we facilitate that as well can we allow that also for these uh, other substances which currently the law just doesn't allow allow that flexibility and so you end up with all supply being in the illicit market and, and you don't have that lever whereby you can bring people into a treatment and support partly through having regulated provision as part of that capability. The, the law as it stands is, is just too clunky uh, and inflexible to allow that. So I guess my last question is, 
what what do you think is going to happen with this document then? Do you think countries are going to look at it and say maybe we should legalize and regulate stimulants? Can you see that happening? And if it is going to happen, where is it likely to happen first? As we speak, a bill is being debated in the Colombian uh, Senate to uh, legally regulate cocaine. And we were involved in, in conversations with the senators who drafted that legislation, uh, that bill. And they, were, they uh, took on board some of the ideas that we have in the book. We're already, I mean, it's not a direct consequence of the, of the book itself, but it, we're already seeing attempts by countries to seriously start putting into that legislative domain, even if at this stage it is for debate, the kind of proposals and both indirectly and directly influenced by Transforms Thinking for legal regulation. And it's interesting that Colombia is going first because in some ways it's not surprising when you look at the countries that have been most kind of savagely impacted by the war on drugs, that they will be the countries that may be the first to say, look, now that we're starting to see actual practical proposals for alternative, let's put those on the legislative table. Let's let's start that process. Let's get that debate going. Now, how long that might take or where that might go next is is impossible to read. But what we really hope from this book, uh, I think, is that it creates an environment in which people start to say, OK, well, great, we've now got a template. We've now got a model. We may disagree with details of that model. We may disagree with it substantially or only in part. But we've now got something from which we can start to have that proper debate whereby we seriously say, okay, if we don't think the war on drugs is working, and given that if we don't think that, we have a responsibility to consider the alternatives, here's, here is the very least, if not the uh, final word on what those alternatives might be, here is a substantially thought through, detailed laying out of what an alternative system, which is based on public health and social justice and human rights might look like. Let's work from that. Let's get that discussion moved from a kind of, isn't it terrible? This is awful. If only it would end kind of a discussion to a discussion of, well, here is what the alternatives might look like. And hope, and also in doing that, I think hopefully allow people to feel confident that they can have that conversation without it just seeming like a kind of weird thing to do. <laughs> so people can go, well, there's actually this, you know, there's, there's this, you know, 300 odd pages of, of fairly kind of technical laying out of this stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a perfectly reasonable, responsible thing to do because I think in some respects, the hardest thing about this is A, giving people a kind of, what do you call it, a kind of nucleation point, I suppose, a kind of starting point from which people can then develop those discussions. But it's also uh, allowing people to have the confidence to, to think, look, talking about legal regulation of drugs, including stimulants is not some kind of crazy pie in the sky thing it's it's a reasonable thing to do it's a rational thing to do it's something whereby we can look at evidence we can make uh, political judgments we can think about practical models for regulation and we can discuss and debate the pros and cons of those models and that that is both important and perfectly achievable and from our perspective, I think if we can move the debate in some way and hopefully significantly into a place where we go from, I suppose, the kind of analysis of the failures of the drug war, critical as those are, 
and vital as that is to continue to do that work of analyzing where those failures are happening and who they are impacting on into also a substantial meaningful discussion of the alternatives and a weighing of the pros and cons of those alternatives and a testing of those alternatives and a critique of those alternatives that's all fine that's all good but to move into that territory i, I think we'll have will have achieved a, a huge amount and i'm really really hoping that's that's where we go with this fantastic well that seems like a great place to wrap it up so thank you so much james nichols from transform thank you susie there we are. Thanks so much for listening. As I said in the intro, this topic is something I've not really covered before, so I'm really keen to hear what you make of it. Do you have any questions that you wish that I'd put to James? Do you agree or disagree with any of the assertions made? I'd really love to hear from you. And if I get loads of questions, James has said that he's happy to come back on and answer some of them. So please do get in touch. Thanks to James for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for listening and join us next time where we'll have the live episode recorded earlier this year at Vault Festival, looking at what we know about the relationship between drugs and sex. See you then. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.